G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. Luke 18, 15 through 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Thanks, Andrea, and thank you, everyone. It's great to be with you. My name is Dave. How are you? You well? Good. Good. Uh, I am the youth minister at City on a Hill in Geelong. My family and I drove up this morning, uh, which incidentally is about 100 kilometres, so you know me and him, same, same, and uh, it is great to be here. I, I used to be here for a long time. I was part of this church for about 12 or 13 Years I was on staff for a little bit, and it's just been really great to be back, see that some things have changed, and some things have stayed the same, including Guy's very loud shirts. Uh, he just rocks it, unlike anyone I know, so it's been really comforting to see that again. We're going to dive into Luke chapter 18, uh, because it's a really wonderful passage of Scripture, and I would love for us to camp out there, so feel free to have that open. And as you turn there or scroll there, I'm going to pray. So let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word. And as we come to this part of scripture, I ask, would you give us faith like a child? Give us faith to hear it and receive it and believe it and trust it and to trust you because of it. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said together, amen. Well, a long time ago in a city far, far away, this happened. My parents, Graham and Nikki Chiswell, got married. And they are awkwardly good looking for someone who's now grown up looking at his parents at about the same age. Um, it's just quite confronting to see my dad look young and handsome like that. It's great. It's not surprising. It's just good. Anyway, they got married. And uh, a few incredibly wholesome years later, I turned up. I was uh, their first child, some would say their best, depends who you ask, and uh, before I was even born, they were praying for me. I, I didn't hear the prayer, but I've since heard what they were praying. They prayed something along the lines of, Lord, we pray that this child would never know a day where Jesus is not their Lord and Saviour. As far as I can tell, God answered that prayer with a yes. Uh, my earliest memory in life is being about two years old in the bathtub, and I had my very first existential crisis. I've told this story a few times, but mom, mom, mom runs in, what's wrong? Am I a Christian? She said, well, Dave, that depends. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe he died on the cross for your sins? Yes. Do you believe he rose again from the dead as the king? Yeah, I do. 
So mum said, well then, I guess that counts. And I've been rolling with that ever since. Baptism's really easy because you're in the bath already, so you just need to lean back and it kind of <laughs> happens for you. But ever since that day, I, I'm not sure that's the day I became a Christian, but ever since that day, I've certainly thought of myself as one and sought to live God's way, whatever that looked like. Now, as a child, uh, it looked all sorts of different ways. I tried to be well-behaved because I thought that's what God wanted. Someone described me as the kind of kid who would get out of the bath to go to the toilet, which felt like a Christian thing to do. Uh, I, I would love church. I got really involved. I got accelerated through Sunday school at one point which is not because I'm particularly clever. I just worked out that Jesus was the answer to almost all of the questions before the other kids did. But, but whatever it looked like for me in my own childish way, I, I've been trying to follow God, and that hasn't stopped. God's answered the prayer with the yes. I can't point to a day when I didn't think of Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. And it's an, it's an amazing thing to hear how people became a Christian. If we were to do a survey, we'd hear... Dozens, hundreds of different stories, different ways that God intervened, different ways that God turned people's life around. And I've got to say that as far as those stories go, mine is about as boring as the miracle of salvation can be. And I'm so grateful for that. It's not better or worse than any other story, but it's certainly the story I'm praying for my children now. The only problem with my story the way it is, is that we're in a series for the month of January called The Verse That Changed My Life, and I'm not sure which one it was. Because I never knew a day when everything turned around and the lights went on and life was flipped upside down. I couldn't point you to the passage of scripture that did that for me, which is why I've chosen this one. Luke 18, where Jesus invites the little children to come because I'm convinced that this passage changed the lives of people around me. And that changed my life. That turned my life on its head. And it was the means by which God answered the prayer of my parents. 30 years on, I'm a youth minister. I spend my life trying to help young people take Jesus seriously. And this passage is still changing my life. So I'm really excited to dive into it this morning. If you've got it in front of you, we're going to go through this using three headings. You might like to take them down. The first one is this, children according to Jesus. The passage begins in verse 15. If we're going to try and set the scene for when and where and who and what is happening in this passage, that's going to be a little bit tricky. Because we're not really given much detail. Luke doesn't go into detail about where it was or or who else was there because that's not his focus. He's not trying to draw a detailed portrait of this. It's it's much more like a montage of things, this chapter. You, You know, the movie montage where someone trains hard and gets big and strong and the music's amazing. Luke 18 reads a bit like that. It's lesson after lesson after lesson, snapshot after snapshot of Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. And and so the setting is not the point. It's the themes of the lesson, the the threads that run through this chapter that he wants to draw our attention to. And Luke 18 verse 15 is no different. So straight off the bat, we open 
and we catch a couple of different approaches to children. Verse 15, they were bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Now, at the time, it was a pretty common practice for you to bring your children to some sort of religious leader or teacher or authority for a blessing. That They would put their hand on the child's head and maybe pray or say a word of blessing. That was the done thing by a lot of people. And so this is not out of place. People think that Jesus might be a source of blessing and they want their kids to get in on that. And we don't really know who it is that's bringing these kids. We assume it's probably their parents. All we know is they're pro-children. They want these children to be blessed. Which is why it's a little bit jarring when the disciples get involved. Because they come in hot with a rebuke. They, they say in verse 15, or in, in verse 15, they rebuke them that they say, no, this is not for them. We don't know exactly why the disciples rebuke the parents or others. We can imagine some possibilities, right? Jesus is teaching and children are loud. It's not hard to imagine that they might feel as though they're in the way, they're interrupting a little bit. Maybe these disciples think that Jesus is just a little bit too busy, a little bit too significant to waste his time and energy on children who may or may not remember it anyway. Maybe they think that adults and their requests and their needs are, are just far more important. And, and so kids belong at the back of the line. We don't know what was going through the disciples' head. We also don't need to know because whatever it is, they're wrong. Jesus thinks very differently. Look at verse 16. Jesus called the children to him saying, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus says, no, let them come. Don't get in the way. Let them come. They belong here. The kingdom of God belongs to people like this. And that's just like Jesus. Because all through Luke's gospel, Jesus has sided with the little guy. Whether it's the poor versus the rich, the, the sinner and tax collector versus the Pharisee and the teachers of the law, the, the weak over the strong, Jesus almost always chooses the side of the little guy. The people who we would assume are not as welcome, not as worthy. They're the ones Jesus gravitates towards. And so children kind of make sense in line with that. And not for nothing, but if you're here at church and you're feeling like you might be a little bit unwelcome, that's not true. If you're weak, if you're broken, you're going to fit right in. Because that's who Jesus welcomes. And it's true for children. They are welcome. With Jesus, they're not an inconvenience. They are not in the way. The kingdom belongs to them. We've heard already how good it is to be forgiven by God and how that allows us to forgive others. The same is true for welcoming. God welcomes all of us in, not because we're lovely, 
not because we're mature or deserving or worthy, because he's just good like that. And he welcomes us, and so we should welcome too. We should welcome children like that because they have just as, right, as much right to be here as, at church as you or I do, which is absolutely no right at all, but for the grace of God and his mercy and his kindness to people who don't deserve it and cannot earn it for themselves. Children are welcome. Now, at this point, we could have a whole lot of fun talking about infant baptism, right? Big theological landmine there. And I'm not going to go there because it's the first week of the year. I don't even go here anymore, so that wouldn't be appropriate. But, but I'm also convinced the passage doesn't really go there. Because whatever you think about infant baptism, nobody on either side of that debate is arguing that God doesn't love little ones. Nobody on either side of that question is arguing that children should not be welcome as part of God's family. Children are welcome. And so we should welcome them too. But, but Jesus goes even further than that in the next verse, verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You see that? It's not just that kids are welcome. Jesus says they're worthy of imitation. We shouldn't just be okay with children. We should try and be like them. It's quite a departure from the attitude of the disciples who think they're not welcome. They're in the way. They're just an inconvenience. Jesus says, no, let the little children come and then everybody else watch and learn. Be like them, which as adults, I think, is a profound challenge to the way we're prone to think about children. As a society, we don't idolize children, but we don't think they're worthless either. We do have a place for them. We value kids by and large, but, but I do think there's one mistake we make, and as we overemphasize the value of their potential, and we underemphasize the value of their present. So much of how we view children is oriented towards the future instead of validating where they're at right now. Even the language we use is revealing. We, we talk about child and adolescent development, right? You develop into an adult, as if to say there's something about being an adult that's a little bit better, or something that you're moving away from that's a little bit worse. What if we flipped the language? We could call it child and adolescent decline. You don't develop into adults, you deteriorate into adults. Now, that's obviously problematic for its own reasons, but, but the language we use is a little bit revealing, isn't it? It's just so easy that we're prone to see the potential of children without seeing the present worth they have right now as children. And so we start to gravitate towards the kids who are most like adults 
We value them over and above their peers because they're like us and that's familiar and that's comfortable. And when we do that, we lose the value of being a little bit childish. And I think it's sadly true in the church as well. We talk about the next generation of disciples. We talk about the future of the church, and that language is exciting and it's inspiring and it's a little bit biased. Because kids are not the future of the church, they're the church. Just like you and me. Jesus doesn't say, let the little children come and then imagine what they could be one day. He says, let them come and watch and learn. Because there's something about them that we need to learn from. They do some of this better than the rest of us. They're not perfect followers of Jesus. But children are not just potential followers of Jesus either. They're the church. So we should welcome them. Now, how do we do that? What does that look like? Well, uh, a stat I've come across over the last little while is that of the 11-year-olds in church in Australia, think of all the 11-year-olds in church in Australia, by the time they're 20, 72% of them will have given up on church regularly. That's nearly three quarters of the kids in church right now will have given up on church by the time they leave school. As a youth minister, that's enough to keep you up at night. And so the researchers started asking some more questions about that. That's obviously not good enough. So what what helps? What, What are some of the key difference makers that keep people in Church, And you know what they found? One of the key factors that keeps a young person in church as they emerge into adulthood, it's not their biblical literacy. It's not how many camps they go on. It's not how good-looking their youth minister is. It's simply that when they go to church, there are people there who know their name. That's it. There are people there who say hello and call them by their name. They don't walk up to their parents and just talk to them. They treat little people as people and they know their name. Can we start there? How many names of young people do you know at this church? And how are you going to make that number bigger? What are you going to do to make sure that you're a part of the lives of the youngest disciples at this church? And what are you going to make sure, what are you going to do to make sure that there are toddlers in your life who can be your role models? The church I grew up in wasn't particularly fancy, the youth minister wasn't particularly pretty. But they did this. I was known as a child and it changed my life. People there prayed for me. They spoke about Jesus to me. 
they knew me. And it changed my life. So, so let's start there. We should do more than just no names. But we can start there. Because Jesus welcomes children, and, and we should too. But this doesn't just challenge the way we think about children. This passage challenges the way we live as grown-ups as well. That brings us to our second heading. Adults according to Jesus. If adults are supposed to receive the kingdom of God like children, what does that mean? What does that look like? What is it about kids that makes them so worthy of imitation? Because there is a lot of great stuff about kids, right? They're, they're kind of more fun most of the time. They have a sense of wonder and joy that makes me jealous. That They have an elegant simplicity to them. Life just seems a bit more straightforward, and I love that. Winnie the Pooh is my favorite philosopher of all time. And he says, it is more fun to talk with someone who doesn't use long, difficult words, but rather short, easy words like, what about lunch? (laughs) Maybe that's it. Maybe their simplicity is the key to childlike faith. I'm not sure that's it. These are all wonderful things. But I think the key of understanding what childlike faith looks like is found in the story that comes next. Let me read it to you from verse 18. A ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. It's a famous story. It's the bit about the camel going through the eye of a needle that comes next. And it's in three of the Gospels. And, and it's often known as the story of the rich, young ruler. But one of the first things to notice about Luke and the way he tells it is that this is just the story of the rich ruler. We're not told that he's young. It's there in Matthew. It's there in Mark. But it's not here. And so it causes us to ask why that might be. If anything, he's separated from the days of his youth. In this passage, that was a time that's passed, and now he's grown. And I think that what Luke is trying to highlight, part of the reason this man and this story are here, is to give us a picture of what it looks like to be unchildlike, to be a little bit too grown up, because here he is with all the reasons in the world to be confident. It seems like he's got things together financially, He's got things together socially. He's even got things together morally. And and so he goes forward for a chat with this religious teacher and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I reckon even that question is revealing because it's such a grown-up question. Isn't it? What must I do to inherit eternal life? You know what a child would ask? Jesus, can I please have eternal life? 
But no, he says, what must I do? Give me the list. Show me where the KPIs I should be aiming at are. Give me the, the big deliverables that you are looking for. Because he's assumed it's up to him. It's something he does, something he controls. And, and so he asks his question, and Jesus' answer, I don't think it's there as a set of hoops for all of us to jump through to get to salvation. I think Jesus' answer here is designed to reveal what's really going on in this man's heart. He, he says, you know the commandments, do them. And he says, tick. Good to go. All over it. What's next? And so Jesus says in verse 22, one thing you lack. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come. Follow me. And with that simple suggestion, he completely strips this man of everything he might put his confidence in. Get rid of your money, quit your job, leave your status behind and come follow me. And instead of doing that, the man makes what a lot of us would say is the adult's decision. He walks away sad. He chooses the financial and societal security and he walks away sad. Now when he walks away sad, I think I've always assumed he was some sort of super rich, grumpy man who just liked the finer things too much. He was too into his fine wines and Food. He loved his mansion a little bit too much. He, it was the finer things that he enjoyed too much. But, but as I read it again and again, I wonder if he's not just a little bit scared. Because his comfort is wrapped up in his status and wealth. His security comes from his ability to control his circumstances. Jesus is saying, leave all of that behind. You can see how that's scary and confronting. But can you also see how having those things, hoping in those things, is the opposite of what it's like to be a child? Because children are vulnerable. It's kind of their built-in factory settings. To be vulnerable, they're weak, they're willing to be completely dependent on somebody else. They couldn't even bring themselves to Jesus in verse 15. They had to be brought so vulnerable and dependent are these children. More than anyone else, kids are willing to bring nothing to the table and trust What is it about little ones that make them so worthy of imitation? It's their total lack of self-reliance. Their total lack of self-dependence. Their total lack of self-sufficiency. That's what they do better than any of us. They don't fall back on their achievements or their status or their fortune or their fame. They come with empty hands Willing to just trust. 
And living like that is terrifying. Because I've got a mortgage and I've got a career and I've got a reputation. Am I really willing to lose all of that if that's what trusting Jesus looks like? If he was requiring that from me, would I be willing to say goodbye? It's no small thing to leave behind the career or the reputation or the mortgage. And I do want to say very clearly before you all sell your houses this week, the Bible is big on being financially wise, on being faithful with your job and thoughtful with your relationships. It's incredibly Christian to be able to provide for you and your family. And so I don't think we should all go out and quit our jobs and sell our houses this week. It's going to look different for each of us. Maybe for some of us, this is the year when you finally sort out your regular giving. Maybe you say no to a few extra projects at work this year so that you've got a little more time and space to join a gospel community or take up some projects around these parts. You've got to prayerfully and, and with others work out, what's this going to look like for you? But it's worth asking, are your New Year's resolutions and your plans for the year ahead, are, are they making you more or less dependent? Are they driving you towards self-sufficiency and self-reliance or are they making you a little more childish in the best possible ways? It's going to look different for each of us. But, but before you breathe easy, we're the richest people in the world. And I don't want to blunt the force of Jesus' teaching here. We shouldn't all go out and quit our jobs and sell our possessions, but it's possible that some of us really should. It's possible your house is too big. And there's an opportunity before you to downsize for the sake of the kingdom. It's possible that the stuff you have and and the house you live in is just bigger than you need. And, And if you sold it, you'd be able to provide for yourself and your family and have more than enough left over to see the most incredible things happen for the kingdom of God. Churches planted in cities that desperately need them. The poor cared for in new and wonderful ways. A a full-time children's minister and a full-time youth minister in every church that wants one. For some of us, it's possible that Jesus' invitation to the rich ruler has not changed. Not in the slightest. Sell all you have. Give it away. Follow him. It might be that you're able to look at your next phase of living on earth, whether it's the empty nest or a change of career or or your retirement, and, and read this passage and say, this verse changed my life. We want to be willing to let the word of God do that to us. I don't know 
who that will be for. I'm certainly not going to suggest any names of people who should sell their house. But it's possible that some should. Let this verse change your life. Let the word of God do that. Leave your self-sufficiency behind and be a little more like a child. Why? Well, because when you put your hope and trust in security of the things of earthly value, you walk away sad. But when you trust God, you will not be disappointed. Selling things might be good for the kingdom, but, but it's good for your soul too. And so as the band comes up, we'll close with this. Our, our third heading, God according to Jesus. Here's the key that on, unlocks the possibility for childlike trust. Here's the thing that makes doing this a possibility. God is kind. God is kind. He's not out to get you. He, he welcomes children. And he invites us and he provides for us more than we could ask or imagine. He's not trying to rob us of anything. He's not trying to starve us. Quite the opposite. He's trying to give us exactly what it is we were made for. Exactly what it is that will truly satisfy us. And we can know that for sure because he gave us Jesus. He spared no expense for us. Romans 8 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God is kind. And he looks after his children. After Jesus' conversation with the rich ruler, his disciples look on and you can tell they're a little bit nervous. So Peter comes to Jesus in verse 28 and says, Jesus, we've left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. Eternal life. God sees everything. Every sacrifice of faith, every moment of costly obedience, God sees it all and He provides. He blesses, He rewards His children, He gives us even better. And so we can trust Him with everything. One of the best ways he does this is the church. One of his great gifts to you is one another. It's one of the main ways he keeps this promise of eternal life to come. Yes, treasures in heaven. Yes, but right now in this age, incredible gift. If you've got children of your own and you're trying to raise them in a world like this to follow Jesus, praise God that he's given you a village to raise them with. 
if you don't have children. And that reality is hard, and it can be. Know that you've got a whole flock of children here who desperately need you now. And not for nothing, but there's plenty of toddlers around to be your role models as well. See, God gives us one another as a good and precious gift. Don't waste that. Don't leave early before that gift becomes a blessing to you this morning. Because God's given us one another, that we might remind each other of His goodness, that we might point each other to the hope of eternal life that's ours, that we might have brothers and sisters to be childish with. That when we look like fools, when we feel humiliated for living for Christ, there are people around us who say, keep going. In Eastern Europe, being a Christian is incredibly difficult. You're frowned upon, you're looked down upon intellectually, socially, even morally. And in one of those countries is a small house church. It's nothing special to look at. 20, 30 people, mostly families, but people from every age and stage of life. And every Sunday they get together and they share a meal and they sing. They open God's word together and then they pray. And uh, this is a true story. One Sunday, this house church was meeting. And they'd finished the meal, they'd done the Bible study, they'd sang their songs, and it came to the time of prayer. And they opened it up. They said, hey, does anyone have anything we can be praying for? At which point, a little girl put her hand up. She wouldn't have been more than nine or ten years old. She said, yes, please pray for me. My teacher hates Christians. And at the start of every week, she asks the class, does anybody still believe in God? And if you say yes, she makes you stand up and go to the back corner of the room where there's, there's only three things. There's a stool to sit on. There's a window to look through. And there's a sign on the wall that says, Fools. When the school year started, there was a few of us who would stand up. But that number's been getting smaller and smaller each week. And tomorrow, I know she's going to ask. And tomorrow, I'm worried that I'll be the only one who stands. Would you pray for me? So the church prayed. And the girl went to school the next day. And the teacher asked, does anyone still believe in God? She stood up and she was the only one. And so blinking back tears, she walked to the back of the room and sat on the stool and looked out the window. And you know what she saw? Her whole church 
standing at the school gates, praying and singing of the hope of eternal life they have in Jesus. Lord, make us a church like that. Make us a church that so welcomes children that we would know them and pray for them and show up for them. Lord, make us a church with such childlike trust that we would be as brave as that girl, that we'd stand up even when it's costly, even when it's humiliating. God, make us a church like that who knows you keep your promises by giving us the kind of unity and love that we can't find anywhere else. Make us that kind of church. Amen? Amen.